I'd like you to take your Bible. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you will. The book of Deuteronomy and chapter 6. It's a very special privilege to preach on this Father's Day uh, for you and uh, for these meetings these next few days. We trust that God will work in our hearts together and that He will truly be exalted and lifted up in our hearts and minds. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to read starting with verse 4 and go down to verse 9. We'll look at a few other verses here in just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thine house and on thy gates." There's an old saying that says you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Sometimes we look at culture today, we look at the world today, we know that God has a message for them, God has truth for them, but we can preach that message, but we can't make them believe it. In our own lives as a family, We can teach our children the right way. We as a dad can try to bring up our son and our daughter in the ways of the Lord. But we can't force them to make the right decision. And so that old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, I suppose is true. However, someone has added a little phrase to that. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But... You can put salt in his oats and make him thirsty. And I really think that many times that's where we drop the ball. As a dad, as a parent, sometimes as a Christian, we believe the Word of God. We believe that what God says is true. We've heard many songs this morning exemplifying and amplifying the importance of God's truth, how we thank God for the ancient words. We thank God that the Bible stands. We thank the Lord that we can go to this book as an anchor, as a rock in times of difficulty or trouble. It is our sure foundation. And yet we look at sometimes our influence and what God has given us to do, and we wonder, am am I just speaking to the air? Is anybody listening? Are my children really going to follow what I've taught? And I think sometimes we have the truth, we know the truth, but often we never create the thirst for that truth. If I had a bottle of water up here, just an ordinary bottle of of water, and I said, uh, I will sell this bottle of water for $10. Now, unless you felt very sorry for me, I doubt that anybody would buy a bottle of water for $10. I mean, you would be out of your mind. 
you could go to Walmart and buy two cases of water for $10. Now, I could be the best salesman in the world. I could talk about all the wonderful ingredients of this Dasani water or whatever, and, and, and you would believe it, but you'd never, you'd never pay $10 for a bottle of water here this morning. But suppose I order the doors locked. And I tell the ushers, let's move these chairs to the side. We are going to exercise. And I tell the ushers, let's turn the heat up. Make it about 90 in here. And we start doing some calisthenics. For some of you, that would just be getting out of your chair (laughs) and pushing it to the side, perhaps. And you might be fine for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And some of you that maybe exercise on a regular basis might go an hour. But I'll tell you what, eventually I'm going to sell that bottle of water for $10. Why? Because I created thirst. And I'm going to tell you, it's kind of tough sometimes to sell the truth. It's kind of hard sometimes to to witness the Word of God, maybe to a neighbor, or perhaps even to be able to get our children to understand it and live it. And yet, God, I believe in this passage, teaches us some important lessons about how to create thirst for the Word of God. It starts with a deliberate communication. Go to verse 17, if you will, in this passage. Communication can take place lots of different ways. You don't necessarily have to be talking to communicate. I learned a lot from my dad by what he didn't say. When I knew he could have said something, he could have been critical. Or he could have been bitter toward a situation. He, he could have gotten angry. But I, I learned sometimes by the fact that he didn't speak. I learned an awful lot from my dad. And I learned a lot from my pastor. I, I learned things from others through their actions. Certainly there's lots of ways to communicate truth or to communicate a message. But here in verse 17 he says we've got to deliberately communicate. And he says declare the absolutes. Declare the absolutes. In verse 17, he says, Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes which he hath commanded thee. Remember, in verse number 6 through 9, he, he talked about these words which I've given you. I, I want you to learn them, but I want you to teach them diligently to thy children. There's a deliberate communication here. We've got to declare absolutes. Now, we live in a culture today that's doing away with all absolutes. Everything's relative. It's amazing to me how today everybody wins. There are no winners or losers. I was attending uh, my nephew's uh, peewee baseball game years ago. I have twin nephews. Their names are Tim and Tom. My sister-in-law got very creative with the names. Tim and Tom were on this peewee baseball team, and they, they begged me to come watch their game. Well, you know, being a good uncle, I said, okay. So I go, it's a hot summer day, I climb up in these bleachers, and these kids are playing this game that's supposed to be baseball. But I'll tell you, they, they, they were just getting started, they were horrible. 
I mean, they were just horrible. They couldn't throw, they couldn't catch, they couldn't hit. I mean, it was terrible. And I'm baking in this sun, watching this, this thing that's worse than watching paint dry. I mean, it's just incredibly boring. And after about five innings of absolutely nothing happening, the, the team that Tim and Tom were on, they scored a run. I, I don't have time to tell you how they did it. It was a modern-day miracle how they, how they scored this run. But they, they, their team scored a run. And, I mean, I jumped out of my seat. I began to clap. I began to yell. They scored a run. And I no more than did that, and I realized I was the only one standing, the only one cheering. And everybody was turning around and looking at me like I was the Antichrist. And I kind of slinked back down in my seat, and I looked at my sister-in-law, and I said, what is that all about? She said, oh, we don't keep score. I said, we don't keep score? What are we doing here? <laughs> we, we live in a day of relativity where there are no absolutes. Everything is, is even, and, and there are no winners and losers. But I must tell you something. When you get to the end of your life, you either win or you lose. And it's real simple. 1 John 5, 12 says, He that hath the Son, that word is capitalized, capital S-O-N, that's talking about God's Son. He that hath the Son, Jesus Christ, hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So, if you get to the end of your, the, of your life and you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you go to heaven, you win. If you don't have him as your Savior, you lose. And you spend eternity in hell. Now, a lot of people don't like that message, but that's the message of the Bible. There's an absolute. And we've got to declare truth. We've got to declare the absolutes. I recognize that we need, to be, we need to be kind and we need to be considerate of all kinds of views and all kinds of, uh, of thinking. And, and we, need to be, we, we don't need to be rude or crude toward people who differ from the way that we think. But folks, there is something called true and there's something called false. There's something called right and there's something called wrong. And, and Paul declares, preach the word... For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. And so God says we've got to preach that word. We've got to preach that truth. We've got to declare the absolutes. The devil is busy at getting people to, to change the truth of God into a lie. And as a result, we worship the creature rather than the creator. I can't believe in, in my lifetime the things that, 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 that are absolute lies that are being taught as truth. Laws are being passed about lies. We've got to declare absolutes. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. He that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Listen, God's word is what breaks our hard, deceitful hearts and, and, and helps us to understand truth. The word of God is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
my heart is deceitful above all things. I can't even know my own heart. But this book, the truth of God's Word, discerns, it brings to light, it uncovers what's in my heart. So we must declare the absolutes. Because God's Word, as we sung a moment ago, stands. So declare the absolutes. But then he says, demonstrate the application. Look at verse number 18. He says, and thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore unto your fathers. In other words, it's one thing to teach it, it's one thing to preach it, but he says, I want you to demonstrate the application. One thing about our children is they don't like inconsistency, don't, do they? I know working with college students, they don't, they don't like it if, okay, here's the rule, but we made an exception for them. They hate that. In other words, God says if you're going to teach truth, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, uh, deliberately give the truth, now you've got to demonstrate that truth in your life. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. We sometimes as parents fall into the trap of do as I say, not as I do. But young people are going to do what we do. Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? We can say I'm a Christian, but the real, the real heart of it is do we live as a Christian? Jesus said, if you know these things, happier ye if you do them. He didn't say if you know these things, happier ye. Karl Marx said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and memorized, uh, Luke and John memorized as a teenager could recite it word perfectly. He died an atheist. You, you can know the Bible. There are skeptics that know the Bible a lot better than I do. But knowing the Bible doesn't bring peace and joy and happiness to your life. It's in obedience to the Word of God that brings joy and happiness and peace. Be ye doers of the Word, not hearers only. See, if all you know is John 3.16, my question is, have you ever accepted Christ as your Savior? You can know John 3.16. You can know it's the greatest verse in the Bible. You can know it's the gospel in a nutshell. You can understand John 3.16, can quote it. But have you ever asked Jesus to be your Savior? Because heaven is not yours until you accept Christ. You can know the Bible, but, but God wants us to live that Bible. He wants us to be a doer of the word. And so he says, declare the absolutes, demonstrate the application. And then he says, defeat the adversaries. Look at verse 19. He says, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee as the Lord hath spoken. Do our children, do those watching our life, do they see us? Obtaining any victory? If, if, if we teach our children not to do something, but we fall to that same temptation and can't seem to get victory over our anger or over our worry or over our fear or over our lust or over our pride, then obviously to them, they're just saying it didn't work, it doesn't work. Do, do our children see us getting answers to prayer? Why should they pray if we never see an answer to prayer? Why should our children tell somebody else about Christ if, if we never tell anybody about Christ and never see anybody say? Uh, I've I noticed that children don't like to shop at garage sales. Now, you do, because you're cheap, Right? But, but kids don't shop at garage sales. 
You know, if you said to your kids, hey, kids, uh, we're going to go get you some clothes for camp. You know, camp's coming up. We've got to get you some clothes for camp. And, and they go, oh, great. Where are we going, Mom? I thought we'd check out a few uh, garage sales, maybe Goodwill. What? Mom, can't we at least go to Walmart? <laughs> Why? Because children don't want what somebody else is throwing away. And I'm convinced a lot of the generation that's coming up right now is throwing away this book because we don't want it. It doesn't work for us. We tried church. We tried Christianity. We tried God. And we gave up when we got discouraged or things didn't go our way. And so we gave up, but yet we expect our children to somehow be religious when we die or when they get married or when a crisis comes. Look, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to teach the truth. We've got to, we've got to communicate that truth. We've got to live that truth. But then it's, it's, it's got to be manifested in, in working in our life. So a deliberate communication. And when we deliberately communicate, watch what happens. There's a developed curiosity. This is where the, the salt in the oats comes in. We find an unsolicited inquiry in verse number 20. He says, And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Do you notice that? When thy son asketh you. Learning does not take place when your children can answer all the questions. Learning takes place when your children start asking all the right questions. God says when your son asks you. You see, it's a lot easier to impart truth when someone comes with a question. It's interesting in the life of Jesus... If you study the Gospels, it's amazing how many times when people would come to Christ with a question, he would respond back to them with a question. Because questions facilitate learning. Questions facilitate conviction. And, and you, we can try to hammer the truth. We can try to preach the truth and teach the truth. But it's a lot easier to get water into a vessel if you take the lid off first. And when someone comes, it's interesting, if you study the Old Testament, it seems like every time that God did some miracle in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, he did some fantastic thing, he would always tell them after it was over to set up 12 rocks. Remember that? He'd say, take 12 rocks, one for each tribe, pile them up here as a memorial. And I used to see that in there and I think, well, there's another pile of rocks. And then go a little further, there's another pile of rocks. I mean, there were rocks everywhere. There were rocks in the middle of the Jordan River. You couldn't see them, but they're down there. It's amazing. There's rocks everywhere piled up. Eh? God did something there. And then I read one day where, you know, God said, when you come to this spot and your children ask you, what are these rocks? He said, then you're going to get a chance to retell the story. You see, the rocks were there to create thirst. Hey, Dad, what happened here? We're out in the middle of nowhere. What happened here? Oh, man, let me tell you the time. You see, the question. An unsolicited curiosity. 
I was having some students over to my house after a drama that we did and had about 80 kids over there piled in there. We're going to feed them pizza and pop and just have a good time of testimony and, and some fun and, and, and play some games and things. And, and so uh, my job was to get rid of the empty pizza boxes. And boy, they were, they were getting empty pretty fast. I mean, they were coming through there. My wife's piling these boxes in my lap, and I'm, I'm taking them off to the, to the laundry room and piling them up in there. And uh, so I'm, I'm, that's my one job, you know. She's got people to serve the pizza and the drinks and all that, and I'm just supposed to get rid of these boxes. And I, I, the thing started about 6.30 in the evening, and we had all these kids come in. We had prayer. We started the pizza, and I'm carrying these boxes back and forth. And finally, everybody kind of got through the line. And a young man, he kind of had finished his, his pizza, and he came into the kitchen. I was standing in front of the kitchen sink. And he, he came in there, and, and he said, uh, Brother Gash, can I ask you a question? And it was a ministry-related question. It was something about something that had been preached in chapel, and he had, he had some trouble understanding it, and he had a question about that particular point in Scripture and how it applies. And, and I just began to talk to him and try to answer it as best I could. And, and other kids were kind of roaming around, and pretty soon a few others you know, got wind of the conversation, kind of jumped in, and then they had a question. And I stood in that spot from 6.30 until 10 o'clock. I never moved. I never ate any pizza. Just question after question after question after question. And, and you know, it was fine. It, it, was, it was great, actually. But here's the thing. The next Monday, I go back to my office, and I, I went by the mailbox, back to the mailbox, and there were, a, there were a bunch of letters in there, a bunch of cards in there, and I pulled out, I must have had 20 cards in there, and they were all thank you cards. Thank you for answering our questions. Thank you for answering our questions. Thank you for answering our questions. Do you know how many thank you notes I get from teaching? I mean, I beat my brains out teaching. Day after day, for 24 years now. I've stood in the classroom Monday through Friday. I teach about 30, uh, 23 hours of credit every semester, week after week, semester after semester. I've probably gotten two But see, when someone asks a question, all of a sudden you can pour the truth in. And God says here, when you you begin to deliberately communicate, I'm going to develop a curiosity about that truth. I'm going to work in their heart, and I'm going to open their heart to the truth. And we see an unparalleled influence in verse 21. Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Then you you can pour into their life what you need to give them. A developed curiosity. God has to do that. And pray that God will will open the door in your children's life, in in those in the church's life, those in the community. I often pray when when there's a kid in the college or or someone that that I'm working with, and and boy, I just know they're going down a wrong direction. I see some things in their life. You know what I start praying? I say, Lord, help them to come by my office today and ask me a question. Help me to run past that kid today between classes and help. Lord, I just want you to help them stop and ask me something, and give me an opportunity to pour in truth. You know, I find that works a whole lot better than send them a pink slip and say, hey, come and see me right now. Because when I do that, they come with the guard up. When I pray that God will open their heart to ask a question, now truth can be poured in. 
Now, in this whole process of deliberately communicating and, and, and this opening up to a question, God gets involved and we see a divine confirmation. Once we get wisdom into a life, God can get involved. And we see an omnipotent demonstration in verse 22. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh and upon all his household before our eyes. See, when we start teaching truth to our children, when we impart truth from God's word into our son and our daughter, when we put truth into the lives of those boys and girls back there in junior church, wherever it is that we have that opportunity, God can get involved in that truth and he can demonstrate himself to them. Several years ago, we had, this was the most uncanny, unusual thing, we had for three weeks straight. Now, we have chapel every day at West Coast Baptist College, and, and we bring in preachers to preach to us, and it's, it's the highlight of the day. We love it. We had three weeks where every message for three straight weeks was on the subject of faith. It, it, we didn't plan it that way. I preached two of them myself. It just, it just, God was leading every speaker to address this matter of faith. It was almost getting to be the joke on campus. Well, let's go to chapel here about faith. I mean, it was, it was coming. We knew it. And as soon as the, the preacher had opened the Bible and read a text, everybody was kind of smiling. Here we go again. And I always tell the kids, when we hear one or two messages in a row that are sort of the same, I say, you know, the Lord knows we needed that. We need a little more emphasis on that. And boy, it was just God was hammering faith. Well, during this process, there was a young lady. Her name was Chrissy, and uh, she was from Oregon. And, and, and uh, Chrissy wasn't playing volleyball that year. She had played as a freshman, but she didn't play that year. And, and I saw her early on in the season, and I, I said, Chrissy, I'm, I'm disappointed you're not, you're not playing volleyball this year. And uh, she, I had heard she didn't try out, and, and, and she said, well, I, just, I have to work a lot. And that's kind of all she said, and I, I respect that. These kids, you know, we don't, we don't take government funds, we, you know, but yet they all graduate without debt, and they have to work. And, and so I, I didn't realize it, but she was, working, she was working two jobs. What I didn't know was she was sending the money from one of those jobs home to her mom, who was a single parent who had cancer and had no insurance. And Christy was trying to pay for some of those treatments. I didn't know that. If I had known that, I would have done something about it. But I didn't know that. And so I just said, well, Christy, I understand. I hope you can get caught up. I hope we can play next year. That was kind of the, our conversation. Well, Christy, during those messages on faith, she always sat kind of in my sight line. I, I sit over here on this side of the, of the platform and she was kind of in my sight line during the messages, and she would just, tears come down her face, and every time the invitation was given, Chrissy would come forward. I mean, for three weeks straight, every message, she came forward. And that wasn't normally her practice, to just come forward for the sake of coming forward. But God was obviously working her heart about faith, and she, she'd come forward, get on her knees, and pray. And I didn't know all the detail of her prayers at that point. Toward the end of that process, we were walking into chapel one day, and the song leader, who was at that time our dean of students, he handed me a note. As we're walking in to the platform, he says, oh, here's a note from Chrissy. You'll want to read that. Well, you know, somebody gives you a note, and you want to read that, you're kind of curious about it, you know. And I had it there on the top of my Bible, and yet I don't like to be distracted during a service, but... 
during some of the announcements, I kind of glanced down on it. Chrissy's uncle had passed away the week before. I found out about it. I had bought her an airline ticket so she could go home to that funeral because a lot of her family is not saved. And I thought she could be a blessing. She had gotten a call that morning from a lawyer. Her uncle had money. And he had left Chrissy and her mom several million dollars. Enough to pay for the over one million dollars of medical costs that her mother had already incurred and to pay for her education until she graduated. I'm looking at this thing during announcements. I can hardly contain myself. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, that morning, message was on faith. And Chrissy, she's bawling. Not tears of, Lord, help me, but tears of joy. And when the invitation was given, she came forward. She's just bawling at the altar. And finally, the kids went back. And I got up and I said, Chrissy, get up here. Get up here. I said, come on. I got the note. I know, but these people don't know. I said, tell us what happened. And through her tears of joy, she, she told what happened. I had a class after chapel, and I taught the class, and I went back to my office, and as I was climbing the stairs to my office, there was a girl seated up on the landing outside my office door, obviously waiting to see me. She was a girl that, if I could describe her, as a girl that the glass is always half empty. It's never half full. It's always half empty. Just kind of a pessimist. Always, always late, never on time for anything, always behind on her work, always behind on her school bill, always kind of, you know, melancholic. I, I, I wondered about it until I met her parents, and then I understood completely. But just, just one of those girls that was depressive. But when I climbed those stairs, she jumped out of her chair, and she's jumping up and down. She's jumping up and down. Brother, catch, brother, catch, brother, catch. I said, Joanna, slow down, slow down. Don't hurt yourself. You know what, what's going on? Come on in. I opened the door. We went in. She, I said, sit down. She wouldn't sit down. I said, John, what's going on? She said, Brother Gatch, it's faith. It's faith. I said, oh, okay. What, what, what do you mean? She said, Chrissy's testimony. Her testimony of faith. I said, she said, that's it. I said, Okay. She said, I, 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 this morning, God, through her testimony, spoke to me. I need faith. I need faith. I need to trust him. I'm thinking we, we had three weeks of preaching on it. What in the world? She said, I, after everybody left chapel, I went to the altar and I said, God, I, I need faith. I need to increase my faith. Lord, I need to trust you. I, I get it now. I, I need to have faith in you. She said, I got up. I walked to the post office. There was enough money in my box to pay my school bill for the rest of the year. It's faith, Brother Gash. Do you understand? You need faith. I'm, okay, okay. But what happened there? God got involved. See, there was preaching. Then there was demonstration of it. And now God gets involved. See, and God will do that in the lives of our children. They'll do that in the lives of this generation. As we exercise what we're to do, then God gets involved and shows us great and mighty things which we know not. Now, there is an ordered distress. 
There's an omnipotent demonstration, but notice the order of distress in verse 23. I love this verse. He brought us out from thence, talking about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. He brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. Notice, for God to bring us in, he's got to bring us out. Now, a lot of times we don't like the out part. We don't like to come out. We don't like to come out and be separate. We don't like to come out from something so that God can bring us in. But God had to bring them out of Egypt in order to bring them in to the promised land. And that was not an easy transition. That, that was filled with difficulties. That was filled with some, some problems. If this generation, if your children have not fought any battles, that's our fault. We've got to let them go through the order distress. Because that's when they need God. That's when they have to rely upon God. If you, if you break the egg open, the chick will never fly. If you put a hole in the cocoon, the butterfly is never going to develop. There has to be an order distress. See, most of the problems that I deal with on the college level when kids come in, they're, they're, you can almost predict them. They don't have any money. Their, their girlfriend or boyfriend just broke up with them. Or they're having problems with their roommates. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. And in most of those cases, there's something I could do about it. You don't like your roommate? Okay, I'll get you in a different room. Your boyfriend's mad at you? Well, have him come in. I'll talk. You don't have any money? I'll call your parents. I'll call your grandparents. That's a better idea. Yeah, I mean, there's something I can do. But then I got to thinking, that's not my job. Because if I remove the obstacle, I remove the opportunity for God to develop their life. And sometimes God orders a distress. All of you have grown. You have grown through something as a result of an obstacle or difficulty. And, and that process has helped you to become what you are today. And with our children, with our sons and daughters, we've got to allow them sometimes to go through that trial of faith, that trial of fire that, 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 that builds their faith. God finds his, his servants in the furnace of affliction. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rather rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. And then we see an owned discovery. Look at verse 24. And notice the personal pronouns here. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. The water had been transferred. God and his promises had become theirs. And that's what we want. We, we want to live as a parent, as, as a church member. We want to live as a soul winner in such a way that the truth that we're trying to impart to somebody else gets transferred into their life. 
when my oldest son, John, was about four years old. We were traveling in a trailer in those days, and, and we were at a camp in southern Wisconsin, Camp Joy, and we were, we were holding a week of teen camp there. And John was the kind of kid, when he was really little, he loved camp, and he loved to go to the activities at camp. He loved to watch the, you know, the, the, the activities of different kinds. He loved the service. He always wanted to be wherever the teenagers were, doing something fun. And you know, at camp, it's a safe environment, and we couldn't always go to everything that was going on, but we would let him go. We knew there was supervision. We knew he was going to be safe, and, and so we'd let him go, but we'd always give him some parameters. Now, you come back in an hour, or when that activity's over, you come back, check with us, and, you know, we'd, we'd have some instructions. Well, one day, he, they were having a big ball thing down at the soccer field, and he wanted to go watch that, and we said, okay, you go down there. But when that's over, and we looked at the schedule, and we said at 2 o'clock or whatever, you come back up here. And so he went off, and boy, he's excited. Well, about whenever that thing ended, he came back to the trailer, and he was as red as a beet. It was a hot day, and he was all sweaty. And, and uh, he came running in that trailer, and uh, I was sitting at a table there working on a message, and my wife was in the back with the baby. She was, she was trying to get the little, our little daughter to go to sleep, and and uh, I was sitting there, and John burst in that trailer, and he said, Mom, Mom, I need a drink. I need a drink. And my wife said, Okay, John, I'll be right there. Just give me a minute. And he said, Shut up, Mom. Whoa. Boy, my head jerked up. My daughter started crying. <laughs> My wife looked up. We had a little dog, a little miniature schnauzer at that point. Whenever one of the kids were in trouble, that dog, wherever he was in that trailer, he'd run to the couch. And he would sit right in front of one end of that couch, and he'd, he'd sit like a statue with his paws out in front of him like this, and he would just shake. He would just shake. And it was like he was saying, I'm being good, I'm being good, please don't hurt me. It was a perfect illustration of cast out the scorn and the simple shall be made wise. But anyway, <laughs> boy, the dog came running. And I mean, it was like time stood still. And I said, John, where did you hear that? Because we, we never said the word shut up. Now, John, all my boys were this way. If I just raised my voice like that to him, he would break. And as soon as I sternly said, John, boy, he just started weeping. And he, and he pointed out the screen door and he said, big kids, big kids. Yeah, he had heard the teenagers say, shut up. Apparently it worked. So he decided to use it on mom. Well, we dealt with that. And you deal with it quickly. You deal with it firmly with a four-year-old. You have to because they'll forget it. 10 seconds. So you, you deal with it right away and you deal with it firmly and you instruct and you discipline. And so we did. When John was 19, he was uh, in college now. And uh, we had decided at that point in our lives to, I was cutting my meetings down to Sunday to Wednesdays and I would, I would drive home for Thursday, Friday and Saturday morning and try to take in kids' activities and all those kinds of things and so they could enjoy the latter part of high school and college, you know. And, and, uh, and then I would, I would go back out on the road, and we were doing this every week. And it, it, was, a, it was kind of a long period in our life, but it was, it was what the Lord had led us to do. 
And I came home, I'd driven all Wednesday night, got home about Thursday at one o'clock, and I pulled in the driveway. We lived out in the country, and I, I pulled in the driveway, and John's car was there. He had an old Oldsmobile that I bought from my dad. It was a piece of junk, and, and uh, it was always needed to be fixed. Something was always wrong with that car. And I pulled in, his car was there. I thought, oh, I've driven all night, now I gotta fix that car. And I'm not a mechanic, but, but you know, I thought, oh, that car's broke down again. Because I knew John wouldn't be there. It was the spring of the year. They, they, were, they were in spring practice for football. They were, they were during, they was during their workouts in spring football and, and lifting weights and all that stuff. And, and so I thought, that car's broke down. So I lugged my luggage up the walk and went in the front door, greeted my wife. And after a brief greeting, I said, is that car broke down again? She said, no. I said, well, what's it doing here? She said, well, I think John's here. I said, well, what's he doing here? He's supposed to be at practice. She said, I don't know. I think he's down in the basement. I said, down in the basement? We lived in an old cheese factory. It was built in 1890. There was nothing in the basement but dead mice and a couple of snakes. <laughs> and the water softener, you know. I said, what's he doing in the basement? She said, well, I think he's lifting weights. Oh, he had an old weight bench down there and some weights and stuff. I thought, why? I mean, at the school, they got machines, they got trainers, they got all this stuff they need. Why, why would he be lifting here? Set my luggage down. I went down the stairs and pushed back the board door there. And there he was, stretched out on that bench doing some bench press. And I waited until he finished his reps, and he kind of sat up. He said, hey, Dad. I said, hi. What are you doing? I'm lifting. I said, yeah, I got it. Why aren't you over at the school? His head kind of hung. He said, Dad, some of the guys in the weight room, they don't talk right. So I don't need that. I decided to lift at home. Oh, okay. Walked out, closed the door, and I went, Yes! He got it. Because, see, you can't deal with a 19-year-old who has a size 18 and a half inch neck and weighs 270 pounds. You can't deal with him like you deal with a 4-year-old. Somewhere in between that, they got to get it. And aren't you glad they can? They can. Dad, listen. Mom, listen today. Parents, church members, listen today. We can't force truth on this culture. We can't even force it on our own kids. But we can create some thirst. We can declare it. We can start living it. We can start seeing the miracles of God in our life. You know what? They're going to come with a question. What is it? What do you have? Why do you live like that? We can pour in that truth. And God will get involved and confirm everything we say. Because it is truth. And it does change life. It can change yours today. Let's bow for prayer.